story is told of a young boy who went fishing, and while he was searching for bait, he found a nest of worms. And so he picked one up to put it on the hook, and when he did, it bit him on the finger. And it hurt pretty bad. But he shrugged it off. He put the worm on the hook, went fishing, caught a pretty good-sized fish. So he reached down to pick up another worm, and it bit him as well, and it hurt, not quite as bad as the first one, but he put it on the hook, caught another fish, and he repeated this a few times until he started feeling sick and weak and feverish. And so he decided it was probably time to go home, and once he got to the road, he collapsed, and a motorist was passing by and stopped and picked him up, put him in the car. Barely conscious, he asked the, the little boy, what's going on? He said, well, he was fishing and he found some worms to use and they kept biting him and here he was. And then it clicked with the motorist what had happened. It wasn't a nest of worms, it was a nest of baby rattlesnakes. He rushed the little boy to the hospital where he received care. And I tell you that story because I think a lot of folks, a lot of Christians, in fact, are in the same boat in a spiritual sense. And that Satan keeps biting them. And it hurts. It stings. But not enough to do anything about it. They just keep on going about their business. Not even realizing that the one that is biting them is Satan himself and that they are in, locked in, in, a, in a battle, an epic battle for their soul. As we've said over and over again in this series, this is a fight for our lives. Souls are at stake. And you can't be neutral here. You can't be Switzerland. You can't decide that you're not going to fight. Whether you like it or not, you're engaged in this battle. And many people are losing because they don't even realize that there's a battle raging. They don't even see that the devil is winning. Preparation involves putting on the right armor. And Paul speaks of this armor. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the belt of truth and how important that is. And now we talk about the breastplate of righteousness. If you look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to stand firm. What makes this battle so much more difficult is the fact that it's not against flesh and blood, that it's against an invisible opponent. Unlike many depictions that we see of the devil, he's not going to walk up to you and you're not going to be able to identify him as wearing a red suit with horns and a long tail and a pitchfork. He is cunning. He is clever. He is corrupt. He is a covert spiritual being that utilizes all sorts of methods in order to gain our hearts. As we said this morning, he is a master fisherman. 
And he knows exactly what type of bait to put on the hook in order to entice you. Paul goes on to say, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Understand that the breastplate for the Roman soldier served to protect the vital organs, namely the heart, the lungs, and the intestines. Now, interestingly, in Bible times, the heart often referred to the mind, the will, the seat of emotion. It even referred to the bowels. It was considered the seat of emotion and feeling. And no wonder Paul included the breastplate when speaking of the armor of God, because as you know, the mind and the heart, a lot of times, are where Satan focuses his attention because that's where we're often left unprotected. And so we got to make sure that we are protecting those vital organs lest we fall prey to his devices. You ever, uh, you ever bought one of those not-sold-in-stores products? You know the ones I'm talking about? You see them on commercials, maybe even infomercials. They're always $19.99. And if you buy one, uh, and, and if you call within like an hour, you get 50 others. You know what I'm talking about? I got to admit to you, I fell prey to this. And one time long ago, I bought one of the paint pens that you see them advertise and you see them do the demonstration. And, and it looks like it really works. If you got scratches on your car, which I did, you get this paint pen and you put it across there and like white out. It just, you know, magically blends in with the rest of the paint and it looks like new again. Not true. Doesn't happen. Doesn't look anywhere close to the original. It looks like you took a magic marker and just drew a line where you had a scratch. But I fell for it. And a lot of times, we all fall for the not-as-portrayed depiction of something. We think that things should be as they say they are. And when they're not, we get upset. Things should be as they are advertised. We don't like ripoffs. We expect appearances to match their portrayals. And it's not unreasonable to expect something to do what it claims. We don't like being deliberately misled. We want reliability and consistency. We want genuineness and authenticity. We want the products that we buy to be true and genuine. And we want people to be that way as well. We expect that from others. So it's not too much to ask for Christians to be consistent and genuine. If someone claims to be a Christian, then their lives should match that claim. Not to say that they're perfect, but it, for the most part, they should be people who are authentic and genuine, right? And our best example of this can be seen in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. These religious leaders were experts in the law that many of them had the Torah memorized. They were considered to be the spiritual elite. But as you know, their righteousness was, was external. It wasn't internal. It was, it was outward, but not inward. Their heart didn't match 
their exterior. And because of this, Jesus reserves some of his harshest rebuke for these religious leaders. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28 reads, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In other words, the Pharisees appeared to be righteous. They seemed to meet the standard, at least on the outside. They seemed to say and do all the right things. But Jesus, of course, knew what was inside. And he says it's not enough just to look good on the outside. You have to to be pure and clean on the inside as well. And that's what the breastplate of righteousness is for. It protects us, doesn't it? The belt of truth is vital. But once we don the belt of truth... We've got to take that truth and internalize it. We have to live by it. It's not enough just to know it. It's got to change us. God's truth, when applied to our lives, causes us to live differently. And it helps us to withstand the devil's attacks. Living righteously protects us from sin. When God's truth is applied and lived, we become a strong spiritual warrior and less susceptible to the devil's devices. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees splashed on righteousness or spiritualness as if it was cheap perfume. It was more than that, of course. They tried to make themselves smell good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. There was a stench and odor that they couldn't cover up. True righteousness begins in the heart, and genuine righteousness changes a person from the inside out. Authentic righteousness seeks to gain God's approval above everything else. The truly righteous person is concerned, first and foremost, with how he can please God in everything that he is and everything that he does. Righteousness is something that has to be pursued with all of our being. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, as part of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And righteousness in the Greek here is dikaiosune, and it means integrity, virtue, purity of life, uprightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. It has to do with whatever has been appointed by God to be acknowledged and obeyed by man. But what's interesting here is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we see that hunger and thirst appear in the accusative form. And when hungering and thirsting appear in the accusative form in the Greek, rather than the common genitive form, it means that you are hungering and thirsting for the whole thing. In other words, I'm not hungering for a slice of bread. I'm hungering for the whole loaf. I'm not thirsting for a glass of water. I'm thirsting for the whole picture. So that's what Jesus is driving at here. This is not something where I take a little sip or I take a little nibble here and there. I want the whole thing. And I'm pursuing this with everything I have, everything within my being. Jesus' audience knew what it meant to hunger and thirst. You know, the common wage for a laborer was one denarius. You hardly got rich on that. Many people... Many people living in this day and time knew what it meant to be, to be starving. 
They knew what it meant to hunger. Very few people had the means, the food, to be able to fill themselves on a regular basis. And it's not like that they could go to their home and turn on the tap and get pure, clean water. And so Jesus' audience knew exactly what he was talking about when he talked about hungering and thirsting. You can imagine a traveler who is walking through you know, the, the desert and the, and the wind starts to blow and the sand starts to swirl and all he can do is take the hood of his cloak and wrap it around him and turn his back to the wind and still the sand swirls and it gets up in his nostrils and down the back of his throat to the point that he almost suffocates, but he would definitely be thirsty. So thirsty so parched that he felt like he couldn't go on until he had something to drink. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That kind of thirsting. The kind of hunger that arrests you, that stops you, and you can't do anything else because you're so weak from a lack of nourishment. That's the hungering that he's talking about. Hunger and thirst, as you know, are intense desires. Now, I would bet that most, if not all of us here, don't really know what it means to truly starve or to go a long period of time without something to drink. You may think you're starving when Chris preaches too long on Sunday morning and you're trying to get to Rosa's, but most of us don't have to go too long in between meals. Most of us can find water readily available, right? But not so in Jesus' time. It's an intense longing, a deep craving, a controlling desire to be free from the power and the burden of sin, to be holy, to be Christ-like. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we see in John chapter 6, our Lord said these words, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, Contrary to what some believed in Jesus' time when they first heard these words, Jesus is not promoting cannibalism. He's speaking in a spiritual sense. He's also tying things together from the Old Testament and the manna from heaven. He's saying, I'm true bread, and you know, we could go into that, but I think we've done that before. For the purpose of what we're talking about tonight, Jesus is talking about ingesting him, his teachings, everything that he is saying concerning the kingdom revealing of God, all those things he's talking about, ingesting that. When we eat food, we ingest food, we assimilate food, right? And and we start to digest it, and the body keeps what it needs to sustain life, and then it eliminates the rest. And actually, the food that we take in becomes a part of us to some degree. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's where we get the phrase, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. When you ingest Jesus... When you digest Jesus, when you assimilate Jesus, you become like him. We become like that which we pursue, right? So if we pursue Christ, if we hunger and thirst for him, for his teachings, if we go all in in discipleship, then we're going to closely resemble him. You know, for for a long time now, I have prayed, and I pray this prayer every morning, God, use me. Use me as your vessel. Use me up. May I get out of the way and may I be used by you. I pray that prayer every day. I also pray that God allow who I am out of the pulpit match who people think I am in the pulpit. You know, it's kind of like the prayer, God, help me to be the man that my dog thinks I am, you know. 
you convey a certain persona from the pulpit. And people, I think, just kind of expect that you're that same kind of person out of the pulpit. But believe it or not, I struggle with some of the things, same things you do. Uh, I'm impatient. Uh, you know, I, I, I struggle with certain things in life. And so I always pray, God, help me to be the man out of the pulpit that I feel like I, I try to be in the pulpit. And I think the best way that that's going to happen, and the thing that I've been praying lately is, sounds so simple, but make me more like Jesus. Because I think that's the solution, right? If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, if I, if I pray, God, make me more like Jesus, help me to be more like Jesus, well, then I'm going to be a better preacher. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better friend. That's really, it sounds so simple, but that's really it, isn't it? To make me more like Jesus. In the book of Hosea, the prophet says these words to the nation of Israel. says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Israel was constantly coming forward to repent and then slipping back into sin. Her righteousness was like the morning cloud, as the prophet says, or like the dew. It was here one minute and gone the next. It was a passing feeling, a passing hunger, the type of hunger that you have. And so you satisfy it with a Snickers. And then guess what? You're hungry again in 30 minutes because it doesn't sustain, it doesn't fulfill. Hunger and thirst at least the ones that Jesus is talking about here, they're not passing desires. These are, are things that demand satisfaction. It hurts. It's painful. It continues to increase in intensity, making one feel desperate. It causes suffering and agony until it is satisfied. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be desperate. It is to feel as though life is slipping away, ebbing away, and thus you realize your need for urgent help. But here's the thing. Whether it's the prayer that I pray every day, whether it's the prayer that you pray every day to maybe, like me, to be more like Jesus, or maybe, maybe you pray that uh, God make me more righteous, help me to be more righteous, it all boils down to really something very simple. How bad do you want it? That's the only theology I have for you. This is not some some big, profound teaching that I can give you. At the end of the day, it boils down to how bad do you want it? How bad do you want this? Your level of hungering and thirsting is not something that I can give you. I can't make you want this. Righteousness is this way. You have to want it. It can't be forced upon you. You have to desire it. You have to hunger for it. Most of us, most of us don't have to be forced to eat. Maybe some kids, right? But most of us as, as adults, if you're like me, I have to be told not to eat. I would eat more than what I should, right? I have to control that. The intensity a starving person has towards nourishment is the same kind of intensity that we should have toward righteousness. We need to be, we need to be so hungry and so desperate that we pursue it at all costs. David said it like this, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As I stated a moment ago, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and 6 indicate a craving for the whole thing. Not just bits and pieces. This isn't about a piece of bread or a, or a glass of water. 
This is about consuming the whole loaf and drinking the whole pitcher. And I think all too often, maybe that's where we uh, fall short. Speaking to myself here, but sometimes I find that maybe a little bit is, is good enough. Some Christians, I think, want God to be involved until they don't want Him to be involved. Help me out, and then once you've helped me out, it's fine if you go about your business. Some want to know what's the bare minimum I've got to do to avoid the fires of hell. Some settle for cosmetic surgery, the superficial. Many don't want radical change. We want just enough to appease us. But we have to reach the point where we say, God, I not only want you, I need you. And not only do I need you, I have to have you. I cannot live without you. I cannot do this without you. I am starving. I am dehydrated. I can't go on. I will do whatever I have to do to have a relationship with you. That is the condition that we must find ourselves in because until we feel that desperation, we will never truly be satisfied and we will never truly be righteous. And even as I'm saying all this, for some of you, you're not hearing it. I can't make you want it. But what I see over and over again is Christians that are allowing the soap opera of the world around them to get to them and to cause them to lose focus. Every Sunday in churches across our globe, there are Christians who come and they sit in a pew, maybe even with other Christians in the same auditorium, and they don't get along. There are those who come and they get their quote-unquote fix for Sunday but that's about as far as it goes. From the time they leave the pew and get out to their car in the parking lot, nothing has changed. They're back to being whoever they are through the week. Do you realize how urgent this is? Do you understand that we all are born with an expiration date and yours could come due any time now? How will God find you? How will Jesus find you if he comes back before you die? Life is much too short to be focused on things around us that don't get us to heaven. Or even things that keep us from heaven, of course. You remember Paul Harvey? Some of you do. You know, he had his famous The Rest of the Story. Many years ago, he, he told a story about a woman named Terry. And Terry had a husband who was a police officer. And she really wanted to to please her husband for Christmas. She knew the perfect gift to get him, and she so desperately wanted to buy him this gift, but she knew that it would be expensive. But it was September, so she had some time. So she went to the store that she knew sold this gift that she wanted to buy her husband, and sure enough, it was, it was really expensive. She couldn't afford it. But she wanted so desperately for her husband to have this gift, so, so she went to the owner and she said, could I pay you a little bit now and continue to pay you until until December and then I get the gift, kind of like a layaway plan. She said, I promise you I can pay it off before Christmas gets here. 
And the owner says, you know what, I, I know your husband. I know he's a police officer. Why don't you go ahead and take the gift? You can pay a little bit now and just, just pay on it as you go, but go ahead and take it. Well, she was ecstatic. Because again, she wanted so badly for her husband to have this gift, so she took it home, but she couldn't contain her excitement. She gave it to her husband that night. And he was so pleased. It was an awesome gift. And it turns out that the owner letting her have the gift early and her giving it to her husband before Christmas was a really, really good thing. Because in October, her husband was on duty and got a call that there was a robbery in progress. He arrives at the scene and the criminals had jumped in their car and they had sped off. And so Terry's husband chased him down. He's in hot pursuit, in a vehicle pursuit. He ended up getting him trapped, pulled over. And as he got out of his squad car, the driver's side door flung open and the driver started firing. One of the bullets hit Terry's husband directly in the chest and dropped him. A police officer arrived at Terry's door and told her the news. And he said, but before you get, before you get upset, let me tell you, there, there's good news. She didn't get upset. She knew what the good news was. And as she tr- cried tears of joy, she was so happy that she gave her husband that bulletproof vest before Christmas. That, as Paul Harvey said, is the rest of the story. The breastplate of righteousness protects one of the most vital organs that the devil goes after. We'll talk about the helmet later, but the breastplate. You think about the seat of emotions. You think about what the heart represents in Scripture, the will. And you think about how so often we leave it unprotected. And the devil has a field day. The devil often hits us where we're unprotected, and the mind and the heart are typically those two places. But when your heart is filled with righteousness, when you're as close to God as you can possibly be, when you are striving and pursuing Him with everything you have, guess what? You're moving further and further away from the devil. So, simple question tonight. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Hopefully you are. Hopefully you are so desperate that you can't live without Him. If we can help you tonight in your desperation, if you're someone who needs prayers, maybe you, you need the encouragement of this church family, perhaps, perhaps you're ready to study the Bible with someone, maybe you're ready to be baptized. Don't leave here a loser tonight. Come as we stand and as we sing.